The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, um, as you know, Mark is uh, on the East Coast. He's teaching at IMS. Um, it's gone for another week, so Ramesh and I are here to talk with you <laughs> about the 16 instructions um, breathing. Um, yeah, so I'll just talk a little bit. Ramesh will talk a little bit. We'll have some Q&A, some discussion together, and then tonight will be a small, a small group uh, night. Um, and I think, I think uh, what would be good to do would be like a review of the first 12 steps, just sort of an overview of the first 12 steps. I was finding it really necessary to do that for myself, just kind of in getting, getting clear and I still feel pretty muddled. So I'll just sort of, I, I'm going to actually read a lot because I, in, in trying to explore this material, I found just a few powerful things that I, I'd like to share with you. Um, and, and a lot of it sort of revolves around definitions, things like how we, what do we mean when we say mental formations? What do we mean when we say mental activity? What do we mean when we say the knowing mind? How is that different than mindfulness? How is perception different than mental formation? You know, so these kind of questions that sort of feel like could just use just some uh, simple direct, you know, <laughs> looking at. So, so we started, of course, with with attention to the body, the breath in the body, establishing samadhi, that concentrated kind of a rooting, you know, to be in the body before we move into the more slippery territory of mind. So our first four instructions are breathing in the body, feeling the breath in the body, calming the breath in the body. Okay? And then we shift into um, mental activities, which is you know, precisely what we did in the sit today. Um, and then the first step as we venture into the mind is training oneself to be sensitive to joy or training oneself to experience joy, which is, I think, can just be like, I think the word invitation is nice because the joy might just be hovering just outside the door. It's just a little invitation with the body settled, you know. Is there joy right there? And I, I really like the Pali word pity, pity, which... Um, uh, you know, it's like a delight. Um, and Temple, Temple Smith, in one of the talks that he was, uh, he, he was saying it actually aligns with what in other traditions we call prana in yoga or chi in, you know, qigong, this sort of basic, subtle, vital energy that we feel. And he said, you know, if you just kind of bring attention to the, the palms or the fingertips... You know, where that feeling of pity, that feeling of uh, vibration, of aliveness is there. And that can go, grow really strong and can, can pervade the body and the mind. And I think it's like just having just that perfect amount of green tea or coffee where, you know, there, right? There's that, just that delight. The mind clarifies. There's creativity. There's energy. It's just the right amount, right? And just kind of... That, that delight, that pity. Um, 
And then that's distinguished, interestingly, from the next step, which is the Pali word is sukha, uh, translated sometimes as pleasure. And it's seen as a more subtle state than piti, more subtle. Um, and, and it's said that it's like the space of sukha holds the piti. So it can hold the piti. Um, and its, its qualities are a deeply stable contentment. And it's deeply pleasurable. And because it's pleasurable, the mind doesn't want to move. Just established in that pleasure. Um, yeah, so these two qualities, piti and sukha, are intended to be to sort of delight and support and warm and keep us present as we move into mental formations, move into the activities of mind. So, um, what are mental formations? This I found... Um, a really useful reading uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh. So um, mental activities, citta sankara, mental formations, which, you know, if you know the four foundations of mindfulness, this is a component of the, four found- of the third foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, uh, mindfulness of mind. So um, this is Thich Nhat Hanh's description, which I love. He says, uh, formation is the term that points to everything that is there, everything that manifests itself according to the law of causes and effects. For example, this sheet of paper is a formation because many elements have come together to make this exist. The trees, the clouds, the factory, the workers in the factory, and many more elements have come together to produce this sheet of paper. So this sheet of paper is a formation. But this is a physical formation. Our anger is a formation, but it's a mental formation. Our fear, our depression, our mental formations. Many elements have come together to make that formation possible. In my tradition of Buddhism, we learn that there are 51 categories of mental formations. Your fear, your despair, your love, your compassion, your mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of the 51 categories of mental formations. So you have the mental formation of mindfulness. That is good news, because if you know how to practice every day, then mindfulness can be, gener- can be generated as an energy to do the work of recognizing, embracing, transforming, and healing. Mindfulness is considered to be the Buddha nature in us. And then he goes on to the Buddha's instructions. Experiencing the mental formation, I breathe in. Experiencing the mental formation, I breathe out. It means recognizing the mental formation, embracing the mental formation, I breathe in. Recognizing and embracing the mental formation, I breathe out. You have to recognize it by its true name, whether that is joy or forgiveness or hope or fear. You have to recognize it as it is. Don't try to fight it. Then he says, it makes me cry. (laughs) He says, my dear little anger, (laughs) I know you are there. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. 
I just lost my place. I know you were there. I will take care of you. You are always ready for it. Don't try to suppress it. Allow it to come up without fear because you already have the energy of mindfulness that you have cultivated during the practice. Thirty years ago in Vietnam, all the destruction and death had sown in me many seeds of suffering and pain. There were nights when I stayed awake, I could not sleep, and my practice was to follow my mindful breathing and embrace pain, embrace my people, embrace my country. That is the only practice. (laughs) So, um, mental formations having multiple components. And and just to add, on the the third foundation of, of mindfulness, feeling and perception are also mental formations. So they are part of that 51 cluster of formations, except they are, they're sort of, talked about uh, on different, in different levels on the four foundations of mindfulness just because they're so meaningful on the path. They're so significant in terms of our practice. But they are like mindfulness, a mental formation. So is that clear-ish? All right. <laughs> yeah, so I really, I really appreciate um, the beauty and the brilliance of the Buddha's instructions of knowing the mental formations, being intimate, accepting, like we really need to understand whatever it is before it can be calmed, before it can be let go, which is the next step. So there's a, there's a, a real purposefulness in the way in which he introduces these instructions. So, you know, when we vi- invite in our, our mindfulness into the mind, um, yeah, so that's the moment where we're not inviting a, a battle, we're not suppressing. We let, we let that anger have its full dance, right? And we hold it in mindfulness with the support of piti and sukha, which create enough pleasure, enough balance for us to observe without being kind of thrown off our center. So those are the four steps. We invite in the, the joy, we invite in the pleasure, we attend to the mental formations, and then we calm the mental formations. And I'll just read Mark's words here too, um, just his little summation that he offered uh, of each, each of the quartets here. Got too many papers. Okay, Mark won't be in the room tonight. I'll just go on. All right. Um, All right, and then we're moving on to the next four. So we move from activities of mind to qualities of mind. So so this is the uh, where we bring attention to the knowing quality of the mind instead of what the mind is knowing, if that makes sense. The knowing quality of the mind. Um, so this, this has been a really uh, important step in our community with the um, teachings of Utejaniya, 
who who really directed uh, you know directed all of us as practitioners to pay attention to the attitude of the mind. With what attitude were we being mindful? With what attitude were we practicing? So there's, there's our practice, but then there might be some greed, some desire, some striving in the mind that's not being seen. So it's like this backdrop that needs to be observed and understood, and it's, it's more subtle. This knowing quality of the mind that can have these layers of greed, anger, and delusion in the knowing. So there's different, I think there's different ways of talking about it, um, but that's one. And I want to just finish up, and then I'll pass it on to, um, to Ramesh, uh, the way Andy Alensky talks about this, this um, instruction about bringing attention to the mind. So here he says, with mindfulness of mind, we look at the quality of every mind state. The shift is back to a particular doorway of experience, this time the mind door. But the text does not speak of simply being aware of the object that presents itself at this door, but of becoming aware of the nature of the organ of perception itself, the mind. It is not just a matter of noticing this thought of lunch or this memory of yesterday. Rather, the instruction requests that we notice whether the mind discerning the thought or memory is laced with attachment or not, pervaded by aversion or not, rooted in confusion or not. We are being guided from content, the physical sensation, to texture, feeling tone, and now to quality. a quality or to an intuitive assessment of the mind's consistency. The training, is awareness, uh, the training in awareness is becoming far more refined and is moving toward a training in wisdom. So there's a lot more to say about that. Maybe that can, we can talk more in the Q&A, but um, just pass it on to whatever... To me, I, as I read this section, um, I didn't, essentially didn't get past the first sentence. Um, breathing in, I experience the mind. Um, <clears throat> and some of you may have heard me speak here before. Um, I have absolutely no pretensions to having any expertise on sutta studies. But I do find amazing sentences like this one that give me enough food for thought for, for a while. And this particular sentence, I think, has given me enough for the rest of my life. Um, so I'm just going to reflect on what this sentence means to me, um, more as, a, and as an invitation for you to do something similar. And I ask for your forgiveness if at the end of my 10 minutes I leave you utterly confused. <laughs> so, because it is going to be a bit of a, just a reflection on what it's meant to me. So um, breathing in, I experience the mind. Um, Partly it may be because of my profession, but also a real profound curiosity about what the mind is. So my question went to, what do I mean when I talk about the mind? And as um, Wynn was just saying, you know, the Buddha was probably some, saying something similar 
uh, when he said, you know, you need to understand mental formations. Uh, I'm not claiming to be anything like the Buddha. Again, that's just some uh, disclaimer there. But we often can get stuck in words and assume we know what they mean. And so as we just start, you know, just staying with them or begin to explore them with some curiosity, you realize that like the proverbial onion, they have layers. But at least in my experience, unlike the onion, as you start peeling the layers, there's actually a richness of fragrance and richness of mental experience. And so first level of mind would be, um, is it the same as awareness? As uh, when we're saying, Uttejaniya talks a lot about it's not enough to focus on the object of your meditation, like the breath, but focus um, on the quality of your awareness, the attitude that you bring. And I've, I've done enough uh, you know, deep practice and have been in some retreats where I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that awareness is not the same as my mind because I've had states, you know, brief, where I've had a sense of I'm aware of what's happening, there are these thoughts, there are these feelings, there are these physical sensations, and that's distinct from this quality that is awareness. So I know that the mind is not the same as awareness. Then the second um, thought that occurs is, is the mind same as thinking? And we all know what thinking is, and that's creeping into our mind all the time. Again, thinking, as, as, a, you, as you get into some depth of meditation, you often realize that there are days when your mind is really calm, and these random thoughts arise that have no connection to the context. They, they just are completely random. There's no connection to where you are, where you were this morning, or where you're going to be tomorrow. So you know that the mind has this particular activity of throwing up thoughts that has nothing to do with what's going on. But then, a lot of the time, that the mind is not calm, or we, the, the totality of our experience is not calm, I'm also aware that the thoughts are related to a certain state of energy in my body. So, for example, during the entire guided meditation, and uh, forgive me when, but there was a level of uh, nervousness. Even though I've given talks here you know, for years, um, I can't help but uh, feel a little, not a little, quite a bit of nervousness and anticipation. So as I was trying to connect to the breath, there was an immense level of pressure if I had to stay with the breath, but I could easily go on to the other energy state in the body, and I could see that every story that my mind was going off related to that level of anxiety. And it would bring in stories from work tomorrow that filled me, you know, filled me with some dread or an event that happened first thing this morning. So the quality of this emotion then determined the quality of the thoughts. So you have your awareness, you have your thoughts. Oh, perhaps I need to understand my quality of my emotions. Then you come back. But then what is an emotion? I mean, how did I know that I am nervous? I am anxious. It's just a label I give a constellation of physical experiences. There was this tick, 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 pounding on my chest. And there was this sweatiness in my palms. There was this tightness in my, you know, in my um, belly. And then I noticed I had to keep straightening my posture because I just wanted to protect myself. Ah, so do I know what I mean when I say I'm nervous? Or am I just giving it a label to describe a constellation of physical experiences 
And then since that is an unpleasant experience, my mind doesn't want to stay there, but goes off into a story about the past, present, or future. So four layers here. Well, we come back to the very first foundation. We come back to the body. But how do we connect to the body? Oh, since we're talking about Anapanasati, we come back with the breath. And so, I, I, I don't know if some of you were here the last time when Gabe, uh, Shelley, and I were here. One of the, uh, what I talked about was a um, couple of areas of challenges that I had with using the breath as an object of meditation. And one was related to my childhood asthma, which is now past. But the other one is that I use emotional states to study the breath. So I use the, the guidance that, you know, hold the breath as an object of meditation, but it's just more a concept. But I find that in, depending on the state of my mind, emotions, thoughts, my breath varies considerably. So I just, so anytime I slip off into stories or I have this unpleasant feeling, instead of staying with the distress, I can go check to see what's happening. And it's amazing how often, as I mentioned last time, I find that I'm not breathing. And so how irregular it is. And so then you can also loop in and say, let me see what happens if I now deliberately breathe slowly for about a minute. So I may do five seconds in, one to two seconds hold, and three to four seconds breathing out. I try to do it for a minute, but usually I go off after 30, 40 seconds. But even that is enough to give you a sense of just the impact of that has an effect on the emotions, the thoughts, and eventually the quality of awareness. So to me, this is how I understand this instruction. So it's not about buying into whatever story, whatever label. Um, And for me, I also have the problem that many of the words used in Pali and Sanskrit, uh, I've also used in my Hindi conversations, and they mean something completely different. Dukh is a common word in Hindi. Sukh is a common word in Hindi. And so, so for me, they just are what they are. It's a word which is like the proverbial finger pointing to the moon. And so, uh, and I also have a, a love of language to see how a single word, even in English, has so many connotations. So I find, uh, this is how I find ways to energize my uh, connection to practice, is that if I just fix on an object, it's incredibly boring. But then I can study, what is it about this object that is boring? And so then you realize that boring is just a word that indicates certain emotions or a certain tendency to go off into stories. And so you can then, you, as soon as you peel off the layers, on certain days you can pick emotions, on certain days you can pick thought. And if you're lucky, especially on retreats, there'll be days when you can stay just with the awareness. Maybe just for a few minutes, but it's amazing. Or you can practice what um, Uttejaniya talks about. If you really want, down, want to get down to the basics of awareness and connection, is, um, you know, he says, put your hands together. And when do you become aware that your hands are touching? When he asked that question. And that's when you realize that there is the sensation, but I could be looking at the gentleman and not be aware. So that quality of attention that comes here is awareness. 
And so on days when either the mind is feeling completely muddled, I can't even begin to peel the layers, I come back to some physical sensation that I can connect to. And literally, it's not the physical sensation as much as I'm aware of sitting. For me, on a day like today, when the anxiety is causing me to levitate a little bit, there is this fat rear end sitting on this cushion. Yeah, I am real. I'm not levitating because I can feel the pressure here. And so, ah. So it's not the pressure, it's the awareness. You know, 30 seconds later, I'm off on some other story, but there is something solid I can come back to. But then if I'm, on a, I'm having a good day or it's a retreat, I can come to something more subtle like the breath you know, or um, even a thought. Um, so that's um, some reflection. Um, we have some time for Q&A. And I'll give the microphone to Wynn because I'm assuming all the questions will be for her. <laughs> no, it's okay. um, yeah, uh, shifting the attention um, to mental activity. So he says, by turning the attention to the arising of joy and ease in the mind, the experience of wholesome inner pleasure can develop and expand to dominate the mind. The inner happiness allows the mind to observe mental activity, feeling, perception, and mental formations with greater and greater dispassion. Recognizing the happiness of dispassion allows the mind to release any remaining fixation on mental activity. And then the third set, now that the mental activity has quieted down, one trains oneself to experience the space of the mind or the space of knowing. The still, mirror-like nature of the mind is to be appreciated or gladdened simply by recognizing it as beautiful. As the mind attends to the beauty of the knowing mind, any remaining eye-making, mind-making, selfing is quieted. Utejaniya. How he says um, to focus on the knowing mind rather than the object. And and in doing that, I I find that I shouldn't, like, for example, if I'm um, aware of seeing, uh, seeing is being known, and so Usually, my seeing would be looking closely at what I'm seeing, but then with the new instruction of saying, no, it's not about the object that you're seeing, it's about the knowing. And then I get really, I don't understand how to switch into that. I feel like, oh, I shouldn't be looking closely then. I shouldn't really see, I should watch. Uh, Yeah, then I get stuck. It's like, how do I... Should I not be seeing? Should I not look at what I'm seeing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would. I, I'll just give this as an illustration. Like, like they're, they're not separable, right? So, so here, in like, uh, there's a shape and there's a color. So we can't just see the color and we can't just see the shape, right? Both, both. So that's the same. There's the knowing mind that the object that it's knowing. 
both are happening. So you can't see the knowing mind by itself without the object. You can't see the object without the knowing mind. So it's just sort of, it's just where the attention is graining, right? It's sort of like just noticing something that might not otherwise be seen. So the other thing is that um, each of us may have um, an affinity for one sensation more than the other. Some folks are very visually oriented, some auditorily, some tactile. And so for me, I cannot see, you know, I think he differentiates between looking and seeing. I have difficulty, like you, with that particular sensation. But hearing and listening is very easy for me. And so right now, hopefully, you're listening to me. But if a bus goes by, you hear, but you don't listen. And so, with, so what I often do is, uh, say, if I go to a theater with my wife, and it's like 20 minutes before, and I do a sound meditation. Close my eyes, and there is a richness of sound that arises. And you'll notice that your mind will go to certain dialogues. And then it's easier to drop those dialogues, at least for me. Um, same when I'm sitting on the plane before it takes off, there's sound meditation. And you realize that a brain has an innate ability to screen out sounds. So right now, there's a bus, loud bus that goes by. It automatic, automatically screens it out. So, but if you are in a state of open awareness to sounds, so you're not grabbing on to what I'm saying or the, what the bus means, then what happens is these filters slowly drop, and there's an amazing richness of sound. And the, you can literally project your awareness of hearing to the far depths. So you, actually, you can actually pick up some of the tinkling sounds in the distance or some people just mumbling in the distance as opposed to somebody right behind you gossiping. So you can also pick, decide which sensation you are able to um, create this with. Tactile, again, is very easy for me. The butt, the touching, but breath is a little more difficult. And the most difficult, of course, is a thought because this, it's much less substantial. And so it's so difficult to watch a thought without getting caught. And I've only been able to do that in the context of a, a retreat in the third, fourth, fifth day. Could you, would you mind repeating that? It seems really clear that um, the sound, the, the sound meditation and the sound without grasping a particular sound? Would you just repeat that? Right. Um, so for me, the difference between looking and seeing is not clear. I mean, I know there is a difference, um, but for me, as soon as I see something, my mind goes on to a story. The reaction to a sight is so instantaneous. But for me, my ear can hear a sound but not listen to it. So... Right now, the example would be if someone were to bring a noisy vacuum cleaner outside, you can hopefully easily either continue to listen to what I'm saying, or if it's tedious, go to that because it's more pleasant. So I find that many of us have this ability to differentiate between hearing and listening. And so, and that's exactly what we do at a meeting as well. We can often hear but not listen. And so for me, at least, that difference has been very helpful. And so what I do in real life practice is I can't do it with music or I can't do it with NPR, but I can do it with relatively neutral surroundings like uh, being in a theater or waiting on a plane, uh, even at the airport. There is an ambiance of sounds 
that I can connect to just as an awareness. It's just I'm. That's the situation. This lady was asking the difference between awareness and the object. So in that setting, I'm aware of the hearing sensation without getting caught up in the object. So these are just kind of sounds that are washing over my awareness. Okay, so we'll just take a moment to sit quietly for the last minute, just kind of settle into your bodies, just appreciating the beauty of the Sangha here, letting go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.